0: Well, I'm going to uh, cut the reading a little short. Um, I was going to read the whole chapter, but I'm really just going to focus on the first couple of verses. So um, uh, let me just read those two verses, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the study. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words. Again, we pray you'd help us to understand it. Come by your Spirit, we pray, and illuminate it for us and help us to see. For Jesus' sake. Amen. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to begin to look at uh, the book of Genesis. And uh, I'm not entirely sure how far we'll get. We'll at least get to the end of chapter 3, probably go to the end of chapter 11, uh, just before the beginning of Abraham's life. And uh, uh, obviously these chapters are at the very beginning of the Bible and uh, the beginning of the story of the Bible. And uh, like such be- all such beginnings... Uh, they lay a foundation for us, uh, it sets a scene for us, it orients us, uh, and sets out a direction so that the rest of the story makes sense to us. And it's so important that uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, described these Chapters as certainly the foundation of the whole of Scripture. The first three chapters, certainly the foundation of the whole of Scripture. And so, in these next few weeks, we're going to learn about creation, we're going to learn about how God made all that is, we're going to learn how good the creation is that He made, Uh, how God ordained rest, how He ordained marriage. Um, How God formed a special covenant relationship with mankind and that mankind was to live continually in the presence of God. And then we're going to learn how things went badly wrong through the fall. And how man man fell into sin and corruption. And then in the next chapters we're going to see how uh, the consequences of all of that and why there is a need for a Redeemer And that need becomes clear even in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. Now those issues are as important for us today as they were for Moses who wrote down this book. You may remember Moses who led a generation of people who had been used to 430 years of slavery in a, a foreign country in Egypt. And they had got used to looking at the world in a particular way, uh, a way that was largely determined by the culture around them, uh, the pagan culture of Egypt, where they worshipped animals and they worshipped men. And um, uh, the Israelites, no doubt, had imbibed so much of that thinking into their own thinking. And now Moses is leading those people into a new life, into a promised land. And now they must see things differently, not the way they did before. Because the one thing that's going to strike them is that everything that they see in this great journey that they take from Egypt to the promised land has been created by this God, the one true and living God. And for them, it was a painful transition In some respects they were like people who were trapped underground and they'd been trapped underground for a long time. And you know when you're in that situation and you come up into the light, it can be a painful transition. Where your face is screwed up and you can't quite make out anything. And you're not quite sure what you're looking at and it's painful. And there needs to be a readjustment and that's what's true of the Israelites. And I say that this is relevant to us today. Because that's what it's like sometimes to become a Christian, to become a believer in today's culture. We come out of confusion and darkness, the confusion and darkness of our day, into the light of the kingdom of God. And we must face issues that previously didn't seem very relevant to us, and our whole view of the world needs to change And this is where I want to begin with you this morning, as we read this first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is such a simple statement, but it's one of the most profound statements that you'll find in the Bible. Because if it is true, it changes everything and I hope to show you why it changes everything. I want to speak to you this morning about three overarching principles that are present in these opening verses. The first is that God is the foundation of everything. God is the foundation of everything. The Bible assumes God's existence. The verse is simply a bare assertion. No justification is given If you look through the rest of the Bible, there's no justification given for the existence of God. There's no evidence provided as such. It is simply assumed to be true. And this is a point that is constantly facing challenge today. With some people, if you mention God, they immediately begin to say, Well, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence for God? How do you know that God exists? How can you prove that God exists? And many scientists do this. Where's the evidence for the existence of God? But let me say to you, I think that when people ask that kind of question, they haven't grasped the nature of the problem they're talking about. You see, people have a tendency to think of God... As some kind of other creature that can be tracked, your know, people have people think about him as a, a phenomenon in the universe, and that if you can observe God, then perhaps you can pro- provide evidence. That's how science progresses, isn't it? You set up experiments. You look, find ways to observe the universe. You make deductions. You form theories and so on. And people are saying, well, we can do the same with God. And all we need is to find some evidence. Find some sort of trail like, like God is some sort of tiger. You know, if only you could find the paw prints. Then you could find him. But that analogy of him being a creature in this universe is completely inadequate, because we're not talking about a being that is like a creature, we're talking about God, who transcends all of creation, and an analogy that is better for explaining the relationship between between God and creation is more like a playwright writing a play, and the relationship between the playwright and the characters. Or the, the author of a novel and the characters in the novel, or the uh, the the scru- screenplay writer and the characters in a film. If I may take an example from my childhood, when we were learning Macbeth, the Scottish play, What Shakespeare writes the play. Macbeth lives in the play that he has written. But just think about that situation for a moment. Does the character Macbeth live with with or without reference to Will Shakespeare? Of course, he doesn't talk about Will Shakespeare. He doesn't even think about Shakespeare as far as we know. Is his life independent of William Shakespeare? No, it isn't. Every moment, every conversation, every turn of events depends on the author of the play. Macbeth may not care about Shakespeare. To him, there's no evidence that Shakespeare exists. But does that mean that Shakespeare doesn't exist? No, of course not. Now you might say to me, well, that's just a play. The real world is not like that. To which I'll counter, how do you know (laughs) the real world is not like that? You see, you can stand behind Will Shakespeare and the play and you can you have a privileged vantage point and you can see both uh, both persons. But we have no such privileged position with respect to this universe. We're in the universe. We're not outside of it looking at it. We're like Macbeth in the play. So how can we see everything clearly? Which brings us to this cry for the evidences for God. What evidence can we possibly produce for a God like the one we've claimed to we, that we claim to have come to know? If we are like Macbeth and we have no way of knowing outside of the world that Shakespeare created. If we are in this world and we have no way of knowing outside of this universe that God has created, how can we know God? Do you see the nature of the problem just to ask for evidence isn't enough you need to get the right vantage point before you begin to ask the questions but let me suggest two things that might help and I'm not saying proofs here I'm just saying two things that will help us the first is this suppose Macbeth were to take a moment out of his life of murder and ambition and think for a moment about his existence And you might come up with a number of questions, like, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there a purposeful story to my life than not a purposeful story to my life? Those are big questions that Macbeth might be able to ask, but they can't be answered within the story itself. That's all in the mind of the playwrights. Shakespeare. So, so too with our existence. There are questions that we can ask about our existence, such as why is it that everything seems perfectly tuned for our existence in this universe? Why is there a sense of right and wrong? Where does it all come from? Why do systems of logic and ethics seem to make sense to us, but nothing in nature actually requires it? These questions and many other questions seem to require an answer that lies outside of the universe in which we live. So that's the first thing. There are too many important questions which cannot be answered in a godless universe view of the world. We seem to need God to make sense of them. So that's one help. The second help is this. It is possible to find evidence for the existence of God but only on one condition and that's the condition that God himself puts it there and that's what Christians have been saying all along for these last 2,000 years this history that we live in is a history into which God has written himself if you like And where's the evidence for that? Well, it's the eyewitness testimony of men and women down the ages who wrote down what they saw and what they heard, culminating in the testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His death and His resurrection, which we celebrated last week. There is evidence of God having written Himself into this story. And so the testimony is clear. In the beginning, God. And I want to say to you this morning that you and I, we can muddle along with our questions about our existence and God's existence, but you'll never find answers to them. You'll never truly be able to make sense of your life until you take the step that the biblical writers took, which is, first of all, to trust in God and then begin to look at your life as he sees it then you begin to see everything else beginning to slot into place now you say to me well that's blind faith how can you go along with blind faith we live in a scientific age and I understand that I was once a scientist before as a minister <laughs> Uh, working in physics research but when you say it's blind faith you, you're you you're saying that I'm taking on trust that God exists, well yes, absolutely right but what's the alternative? if you're a humanist you have to assume, for example, the existence of rights but how do you prove it? if you're a rationalist You must assume logic without using logic to prove that logic is valid. Otherwise you're assuming what you intend to prove. If you're an empiricist, in other words, you, you rely on your senses to try and make sense of the world. How do you know that your senses are valid? And how can you prove it? You have to assume it. And so scientists have to assume the validity of their senses and their instruments. But with God, you see, all things fall into place better than anything else. I was once a research scientist, as I said, and I can remember many late nights doing research, analysing data, reading research papers, trying to make sense of, of it all. And then experiencing that sense of relief when suddenly something clicked into place. You say, aha, now I get it. Now it makes sense to me. And it's possible for us to ask those big questions. But when we begin with God, we see that they begin to click into place. All the answers begin to click into place. Because we have started from the right vantage point. The fundamental truth that God exists and can be known. Now, I just ask you this morning, is that your position today? If you're a Christian, can I invite you to look again at your basic assumptions? You see, it's easy for us as Christians to simply go along with the culture today and to hanker after a proof of God's existence. If only I could just prove unequivocally that God exists rather than simply start with God and see how everything else falls into place. Or maybe you're not a Christian and there's much that puzzles you and maybe you despair of ever finding answers to the big life's big questions. Then can I invite you to begin with this revolutionary thought in the beginning, God. So that's the first thing. God is the foundation of everything. But here's the second thing. God is the creator of everything. This verse says unequivocally, God created the heavens and the earth. Now what's Moses saying here? Well, a couple of things about that. First of all, the word for created, bara, if you want to know your Hebrew, uh, that, this word, is found rarely in the Bible, but it's only ever used where God creates something out of nothing. In other words, God didn't create the heavens and the earth out of stuff that was already existing. In the same way that you and I, you would make a chair out of wood or or a suit out of cloth. God made made this universe out of absolutely nothing. Nothing. And all he, all he had to do, as we shall see next week, is say the word, and it appeared out of nothing. There was a time, if we can speak of time in this way, before creation, when nothing existed except God alone, and then a time when God and creation existed. So that's the nature of the creation. But the second thing to say about this is, he made, he created the heavens and the earth. And when Moses uses that term, heavens and earth, we need to understand that he really just means everything, seen and unseen, absolutely everything. Everything that is not God has been created. And so Moses is saying quite clearly that God made an ordered universe that we see out of absolutely nothing of his own free choice and his own free power. What does that mean for us then? Well, it it places God, if we haven't already got this message, on a fundamentally different level of being to us. There is a clear distinction between creature and creator. And the distinction is not simply one of scale. You know, God is bigger than us and more powerful than us. As though he were the same kind of stuff as us, but more of it. Like our relationship to a virus, say. That's not the relationship God has with his creation. But this is a distinction of being. His being is fundamentally different from ours. Now, some religions have thought that God God and creation were of one being, a kind of pantheistic view of the universe. And some Christians inadvertently fall into pantheistic thinking if they're not careful. But the risk with that is, is that you confuse the worship of creator with the worship of creation and the subtle worship of man, the subtle worship of animals, maybe even the subtle worship of the environment and the, and the earth. You no, know, we worship a God who transcends creation. Separate, distinct, above, outside of creation, yet bears such a relationship to his creation that it is dependent upon him for his, on his continuing sustaining power. He is present in creation, though he is separate from creation. And that's why Paul says to the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. And, and the word for that, the technical word for that is he is imminent. He is present everywhere. Our being is depends on his being, not the other way around. Uh, God is completely self-contained. Everything that he needs can be found from within himself. All knowledge, all sustenance, all joy, all relationship, everything, everything you can think of can be found within himself. And it's for this reason that he utterly deserves our worship. He is utterly worthy In Himself. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinite in knowledge. He is present in all corners of the universe, not parts of Him distributed across the universe. So if you go to one place, you'll find one part of God, and another place, you'll find another part of God. In every point of space, all of God is present. This is what it means that God transcends creation. He is the ultimate source of all that is good and he is present everywhere and to bring it down to earth as it were, to continue with the Apostle Paul and the Athenian philosophers, Paul says this, he is actually not far from each one of us which in turn means that nobody can escape from him No matter how much we try to ignore him or deny him, he is present wherever we may choose to go. If you want to be an astronaut and go to Mars one day, and people are planning for that these days, you'll find in Mars that God is as present on Mars as he is here today. Or whatever planet you end up going to, God will be there. You cannot escape from him. This is the great truth for those who genuinely seek God. Even today, if you want to meet with him, you do not have to make an appointment. There's no need to wait while somebody goes and fetches him. He is present and available wherever you are. So God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. But finally, and very briefly, God is three in one. God is three in one. I only briefly mention this, we'll maybe say more about this next week. But in the first chapter here, we get a a clue to the nature of God, which unfolds for us in the unfolding of history. You see, at the beginning, there is God. And then in verse 2, there is the Spirit of God who hovers over the waters. And then in verse 3 onwards, there is the word of God who, by which God spoke and all things came into being. Now if all we had in our hands was the book of Genesis, we might simply think that God acted through wind and word, a wind and a voice. Yet it becomes clear as Scripture unfolds that this wind of God, the Spirit of God, and this Word of God are personal. If I may just draw your attention to how the Word is personal. Of course, John's, John the Apostle picks this up in his opening verses of his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. You see, the the true and living God is a trinity of persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of that, because of this relational nature of God, that there are three persons relating to one another, this is a God, therefore, that can be known. This is a God who wants to be known. even though we put ourselves at odds with him, rebelling against him, ignoring him, denying him, yet in time, God has come and stepped into our existence as the words that created the universe, We became flesh and lived among us. And he did this to bring about reconciliation between God and man, between the creator and creation. The word of God who spoke the creation into being took the nature, our nature, in order to be a redeemer of people. This is Jesus Christ, who came and lived and went to the cross to suffer and die for sins. And it's through this word and the power of the Spirit that we can know God and come and begin to worship him as he deserves. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, your creative power. We thank you you've made us, and even now as we live and breathe, you sustain us and keep us. We pray that you'd help us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe in the Triune God, and to see wonderfully all things fall into place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.